0: What is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort in life and in death? Now that is a question. That is a great question. That is very relevant to us. It's always been relevant since there's been sin in this world. Where do we look for comfort regardless of what's happening situationally, circumstantially? Where do we look? What is our ultimate only comfort? And the answer to that question is a classic answer and I won't try to improve upon it. Listen to to how it was answered in 1563. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to Him. Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. I love The question, I love the answer because it summarizes really what it means to be a Christian and how to live like a Christian and think like a Christian. And so our only comfort in life and in death ultimately is found in Christ. But that question actually begs a second question. So question number two, Heidelberg Catechism, 1563, relevant 2020. Question number two. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? The answer, it says, there are three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. How great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. How I'm set free from all my sins and misery. And third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. How I am to thank God for such deliverance. Those are good and right answers. They are encouraging answers. Again, not because they're novel or because they're old, but because they summarize really biblical Christianity and a biblical perspective on life and complicated living. So I mentioned all of that this morning because of its obvious relevance to us, so that we might be thinking rightly, so that we might be thinking Christianly. But I also mentioned it this morning uh, for a secondary reason, and that's because of the great paradigm it gives us, not only for, for life and functioning in this world, but it also gives us a great paradigm. That second question and second answer gives us a great paradigm, not only for thinking and living, but also for understanding the Bible. Okay? If we're going to live this kind of life that would honor Christ, we would want to understand the Bible. The paradigm we find in answer two of the Heidelberg Catechism is a great paradigm for understanding all that God requires, all that he commands, and I can summarize it with the three G words that I like to use so often, guilt, grace, and gratitude, because really that's what uh, the answer is, the three things can be summarized when it says how great my sin and misery are, that's great, that's guilt. Second, how I'm set free from all my sins and misery, that's grace. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance, that's gratitude. And so guilt, grace, gratitude, that's our paradigm. And we're going to hear Jesus give commands today. But whether they're from Jesus or from God in any place in scripture, when we hear commands, requirements, when we hear law, we'd better not be confused. We'd better understand that, well, we'd better understand commands are things we don't meet because we're sinners, guilt. And yet if we look to Christ to provide atonement and forgiveness and and reconciliation, we see God's grace, so he meets the obligations for us and forgives our breaking of them. And then third, now what should we do with those commands? Well, now that we're in a new position, a new status before God, we want to do the right thing. We want to honor Him the best we can by the power of the Spirit. We want to do things out of gratitude. And so I want to use the paradigm today again not to superimpose something false on Scripture. But I know that when you read... Uh, teachings about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, interpretations on the Sermon on the Mount, there are so many different ideas. And there are so many even false religions and false religious ideas that have started because of statements in the Sermon on the Mount misused, uh, partially quoted, taken out of context. I think it's safe ground to say, how have other Christians approached this? where where they paid attention to the debates, and they paid attention to the water under the bridge, and they paid attention to the work of the Spirit in the past. And my conclusion is, let's approach the Sermon on the Mount. Therefore, like thinking Christians before us, let's think of these commands through the lens of guilt, grace, and gratitude. Let's not start over from scratch. I think it was C.S. Lewis who, who said, let's not commit chronological snobbery. I just like the sound of that. I just want to say it. Chronological snobbery. In other words, let's not be so arrogant as to say, let's just read all the commands and, and try to figure it out. No, let's say, let's look at the, de- the debates that have happened in the past. Let's read the commentaries. Let's think all think through how Christians, thinking Christians, I'm going to add Protestant, Reformational Christians, how have they thought about the commands of Scripture? Well, Pretty much, if they've kept their head on straight and understood uh, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, it's through the paradigm. So we're going to hear from Jesus today, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at verses 21 to 48, and as we hear him give these requirements, these declarations, these commands, these laws, we're going to step back after we hear each of them, there are six of them, and we're going to say, how does, it, how does this relate to guilt how does this relate to grace? How does this relate to gratitude? Okay. So what we're going to see this morning as, as we look, uh, as we hear from Jesus, he's going to give those famous, but I say to you statements. And he says, but I say to you, 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 maybe if I'm up to six, I'm right, but just in case, but I say to you six times, he says, this is what you've heard in the past, but I say to you. He gives us these these new commands, if you will, these refined commands, these refined requirements. And so we're going to work our way through these six, but I say to you, declarations from Jesus. And if you're taking notes, I have a really, really, really long outline point for each of these. So you'll probably just want to abbreviate. But every time we get to one of these, but I say to you, Requirements, I'm going to say the first, but I say to you, declaration from Jesus that exposes guiltiness, comma, points to grace in Christ, comma, and guides the saved in gratitude. So, guilt, grace, gratitude. Each one of these is designed to do that. Number one, the first. But I say to you, declaration from Jesus that exposes guiltiness, points to grace in Christ, and guides the saved in gratitude, we see in verse 21. Look there with me if you would. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Exodus 20 verse 13. Note the legal emphasis. He uses all kinds of legal words, law words, throughout this section. So here's what the law required. Here's what the law said. You've heard it. You know it well. Who doesn't know that murder's wrong? Whether they know it's in the Bible or not, it's in the moral law. It's recorded here in Exodus 20. You've heard it said. My question for you is do you think Jesus is going to correct it? Do you think Jesus is going to say murder's wrong? Uh, I don't think so for a second. He's not there to correct the law. Notice what he says in verse 21. If you look there, you'll see. But I say to you... Notice the authority. He's he's putting himself on par with the divine authority. But I say to you, and rightfully so... By the way, just as an aside, in chapter 7, at the end of this, the people are going to say, He doesn't speak like others. He speaks uniquely, extraordinarily, as one who has authority. Like the authority from above. So, but I say to you, equal par, keep going then in verse 22, that everyone who is angry, so we have murder and angry are the connections. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. There's our law emphasis, judgment. Whoever insults his brother, there's the other connector, insults his brother will be liable to the council. So that would be the Sanhedrin, made up of the priests, the elders, the scribes, the high priest as the president. Again, it's it's their law court in a religious context. And whoever says you fool, Moros, where we get Moron, whoever says Moron, an insult, a put down, will be liable to the hell of fire. Whew. So much for the kinder, gentler Moses. People actually say that that's who Jesus is. He's, oh, the Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes. He's the kinder, gentler Moses. You could borrow my glasses. So, so what, what do you mean, kinder, gentler Moses? You've heard that it was said that murder is wrong. We can all agree to that, except murderers. sometimes. But I say to you, if you insult someone by calling them a name like moron, I might say, "You idiot! You jerk! You piece of work!" or however, whatever word we're going to use. That's the idea. He says, "You're liable to the hell of the, the, the hell of fire, judgment. That would be ultimate judgment, ultimate condemnation. Legality words. Wow. So, to use my paradigm or the borrowed paradigm, how does this expose?" Our guiltiness. It definitely easily exposes our guiltiness. It's pretty hard to to find anyone who's uh, of any age at all who's not guilty of this. It exposes our guilt. Jesus is, is not softening the law. He's not lowering the law. If anything, he's blowing the dust off of their eyes so that they can see rightly the intent. What's the design been all along? That you're a lawbreaker. That you're guilty, 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 guilty. And this is actually leading to something good. He's not saying something wrong. This is good. And it's good to know that you're guilty. I talked to a a young man not too long ago, and in essence, he was blaming his parents for his PTSD. Oh, we love us some labels. Uh, He's blaming his parents for his PTSD because when he was young, they talked to him about heaven and hell and God's perfect requirement. And if you don't trust in Jesus, you deserve hell. I call that good parenting I think Jesus would say good job and we don't want that young man to stay in that state but you, you'll never look to Christ if you don't know you have a problem if you don't have guilt and Jesus wants everyone to feel guilty he wants everyone to know that you don't meet the standard all of the self-righteous look at me I'm better than some other person kind of thing he's, he's making sure that, that that's dispelled how does it show us our guilt? rather easily Next question, again, using the paradigm, how does this point to grace in Christ? Well, I think that's pretty easy as well. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1 says, Jesus Christ, as I like to quote so often, the righteous, the law upholder. Jesus did the right thing here. This is designed to have people look to Christ. What's my only hope to get out of hell then, to get rid of my PTSD, or whatever it might be? I've got to look to Christ. I've got to look to Him. The upholder of the law, the one who didn't come to abolish, chapter 5, verse 18, but to fulfill. This is all in that context. The next question, then, again, with the paradigm of guilt, grace, and gratitude, is how does this guide the saved in gratitude? Well, it guides us in gratitude if we're trusting in Christ because now I can say, well, now that I'm trusting in Him, my relationship with God is no longer dependent upon my perfect righteousness. I'm looking outside of me for Christ's righteousness and and forgiveness. And so now that I'm not under condemnation, I've been justified, not condemned, now I want to do the right thing out of gratitude by the power of the Spirit. Not to get in, but because I am in. And now all of a sudden, the law of God is not this horrible thing. It's actually something I want to do. It reminds me of the psalmist. If you read Psalm 119, uh, the psalmist uses all different um, synonyms for law. Sometimes he says uh, testimony, word, law, other things like that. I, I love the way the psalmist can say from a believing perspective, Psalm 119, verse 105, Your word... Synonym for law, if you cross-reference to verse 97, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Oh, it's it's for my safety. It's what I want to do so I can go in the right direction, the proper direction, and, and honor you and also do what's good and right for me. Now, to further press the point... And I think we should not take this out of context to further press the point of this but I say to you statement. Let's look at verses 23 to 26. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, think Old Testament, think animal sacrifice, It's present tense, so this is happening right then and there. So if you're in the midst of doing this religious act, which is good and right and something God wants you to do, and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, again legal emphasis, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison, legal, 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 law, law, law. Truly I say to you, you will never get out strict justice law. You will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Again, not kinder, gentler Moses. Exactitude. Justice. Severe. Not good news. The kind of stuff that shows guiltiness. Guiltiness. Let me ask you, which, which is more important? Worshiping God? Or doing the right thing regarding someone who is angry with you? I think the obvious answer is worshiping God. I think Jesus would agree worshiping God. But what he's doing here is he's, 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 he's un- uncovering a problem. And the problem is, I, as long as I do the external worship things, I can neglect other significant important things. And so Jesus, knowing that this must be going on at the time, is saying, you know what, don't compartmentalize your life. You need to be honoring God, loving God, and neighbor. So go deal with your problem and then come. And now we're thinking clearly and sanely about how how all of this works. I think the main reason he's emphasizing what he's emphasizing here, though, is to get their attention that God is not deceived, that they think they're okay because they're going through the religious actions. And in fact, they're very, very, very much guilty. So again, it's a true thing. In my life, if I know someone has something something against me, I, I, I need to try to go, go deal with that to the best of my ability. Insofar as you can, the Apostle Paul might say. So that's true and right. So in the gratitude section of the paradigm, I want to do that as a Christian. But I also need to know in the guilt section, I don't have all of those loose ends tied, nor could I ever ultimately, and so I've got a problem. So I've got to look to Christ ultimately. I wouldn't want to preach that text out of this context because more than likely, or, or out of the context of the gospel account, because more than likely, you're either going to promote self-righteousness and people don't realize it, um, or you're gonna what you're going to end up promoting is absolute, total despair. But in our greater context, Jesus is the one who fulfills all the righteousness. Now we can look at it from all three different perspectives. Let's move on to the second, but I say to you declaration from Jesus that exposes guiltiness, points to grace in Christ, and guides the saved in gratitude. Verse 27, if you look there. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. True? Think Jesus is going to disagree with that? He's not going to disagree with that. Verse 28, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman, so we have adultery, and now we have looks. There's a pretty big difference between adultery and looks. Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is a pretty big deal. This is a pretty big deal because adultery is sin. Old Testament, New Testament. So uh, sexual relationship with, with someone, if you're married or they're married, there's a violation because they're not your spouse is the idea. Jesus says, that's wrong. You've heard that. You're all right in thinking that way, but let me get to the intent. The intent is, if you look with lustful desire, you're Guilty of adultery. And there are a few people who walk the face of the earth that shouldn't say, in light of that, gulp. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 bars adulterers from heaven. Wow. Verse, verse 20, 29 says if your right eye causes you to sin thought of as the best eye back in the day, apparently, from what I've read. Uh, Even Josephus, uh, the writer, talks about how some kings, when they would conquer peoples, they would take the right eye of the warriors out because the left eye was protected by the shield, apparently, or something like that. But your, your, your best eye, at least that's what they thought at the time, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And and if your right hand causes you to sin, which is the best hand, right? Sorry, lefties. Um, my dad would be offended by that. Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. What is Jesus driving at? Well, first and foremost, He's driving at the fact that sin is bad. Hell is bad. You don't want to go there. It's ultimate bad. So on one level, He's saying, Do anything possible to avoid hell because it's the worst. It's what you don't want. Ultimate judgment, ultimate law, ultimate condemnation. Go to whatever extreme is necessary to avoid hell. He's making that point, but, but in so many ways, he, he, he makes the deeper, more profound point. Everybody's guilty and everybody deserves hell if looking lustfully is adultery. And by the way, what if by removing your right eye and your right hand, you could stop sinning? What would still be a problem? I mean, it'd be good if you could stop sinning. I think he's using hyperbole to make the point. But if you stop sinning now, you still would have a problem because you're still guilty. We're still under God's condemnation. So reading it in the greater context, yes, sin is bad, sin is awful, do whatever you can to, to, to stop this problem. But by the way, you're still guilty, you're still busted. You still need the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. You still need, chapter 1, verse 21, Jesus to save you from your sins. So, again, He's. if we step back and say, all right, in light of this, let's do our paradigm then. Well, it exposes our guiltiness because he's getting at the heart. And even if we have a good external behavior, we think wrongly. Everyone's guilty of thinking wrongly about others at times. So there's that, universal guilt. How does this point to grace in Christ? Again, it points to grace in Christ if we think in terms of he came to save his people from their sins. I can't plead with you enough to keep going to that, what I'm calling the touchstone. The whole gospel account is ultimately about how Christ came to save so here is he saying if you want to go to heaven just stop sinning well it would be good to stop sinning because sin is really bad but you're already busted you're already guilty we're already sons and daughters of Adam remember the whole big picture step back and go always back to the touchstone we're meant to read the whole account in light of the fact that he came to save his people from their sins their violations of God's commandments to look to him that's what this is designed to have us do to see Him at Calvary. We know how it begins in His naming. We know how it ends at Calvary. I like what Michael Horton said uh, about God's requirements. He says, first, we need to constantly hear the law of God. And Jesus is helping us to see the law of God here clearly, even at its heart intent. In spite of our failure to conform to it, that we will forever be running to Christ. Forever running to Christ. Then how does this guide the saved in gratitude? Well, new status, no condemnation. Again, now a desire to honor Him and do what He would want me to do, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Let's move on. Let's go to a third, but I say to you, declaration from Jesus. It exposes guilt, points to grace in Christ, and guides the saved in gratitude. 31. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Which is what Deuteronomy 24 talks about. So just to kind of bring you up to speed, divorce is rampant in the culture that he's addressing. Um, We're familiar with what that looks like. Uh, You could divorce your wife if you were a man. There's definitely sexism involved. You could divorce your wife uh, if you were a man because you didn't like the way she made the food according to um, rabbinic rabbinic tradition. Uh, If you found someone else who was, to quote a rabbi, fairer in your eyes than she was... for all different kinds of reasons, you could divorce your wife. So it's rampant in the culture, running around, divorce, divorce, divorce. Um, but the law says to protect the woman, if you do, you have to give her a certificate of divorce so that she can prove that she's not married to someone else anymore. Because if you're living in a culture where you probably need to be married, even to survive, you have to prove that you're actually not belonging to some other man again. All kinds of crazy, all kinds of upside down, but the law is trying to at least help, help out the situation. So that's what's going on there. 32 says, but I say to you, so dime a dozen divorces, mitigated, moderated by at least you have to have the, you have to give her a certificate. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, there's a clause there that Jesus understands and knows, there there is something that breaks the marriage bond, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Once again, the expectation is you're going to be remarried for survival purposes. This is designed, again, to show people their guiltiness. Divorce, 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 dime a dozen. Oh, but we're good religious people because Rabbi so-and-so says under these circumstances. Rabbi so-and-so says under these circumstances. And and, and it's not true breaking of marriage through adultery. It's just willy-nilly. All over the place. And so by Jesus saying what he's saying, no doubt he's shining the light of God's law on lots of sin, showing lots of people their guiltiness. So it exposes guiltiness because he gets at the heart of the matter. We don't have dime a dozen willy-nilly for whatever reason because it didn't please you kind of divorce. Shows grace in Christ because he's the propitiator who's going to remove guilt of sin, even that sin. It also guides the saved with gratitude because we can honor Christ regardless of our marital status. I want to honor Christ with my life. I want to honor Christ if I'm you fill in the blank. There's more that needs to be said about marriage and divorce. The Bible has more to say about it. We're not going to do it this morning. I think what he's doing here again is focusing in on a trivializing of God's law and what God has made in marriage. And he's exposing their sin so that they will turn to him and so that Christians, believers, will honor God with their less than perfect spouse because that would include everybody. That's on the gratitude side. Let's move on now to the fourth, but I say to you, declaration from Jesus that exposes guiltiness, points to the grace in Christ, and gives uh, guides the saved in gratitude. Verse 33, if you look there with me, you'll see it. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, probably including lots of passages here, not just one, whether it be Leviticus 19, Numbers 30, Deuteronomy 23, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Verse 34, Jesus says, But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is His footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great King. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. What seems to have been going on and what commentators tell us going, is going on and historians tell us this is going on is people were trying to be weasels, right? Right? I can, I can say certain things, but it could be deceptive on, uh, unless I'm gonna swear on a stack of Bibles or whatever it is, they would, they're saying different things then, but we kinda get the idea. Uh, Jesus is, is making the point, you know what? Don't, you, you, you have to have integrity. You, you, your yes should be yes, to quote James, his brother later. Uh, just, your, your word, because you have honesty, because truth is right, and, Honest and true and genuine. And and people should not be deceiving their neighbors through trickery or certain words where you have to add all of these qualifiers and swearing on God and uh, I swear to God kind of stuff. It doesn't make any sense. Don't do that anymore. And apparently it, it had become a pretty big deal. We should know that Jesus, it would be an error to say Jesus is suggesting that you can't ever take an oath. Um, Jesus in Matthew chapter 26 verses 63 to 64 will swear under oath from the government that he is who he's been claiming to be. The point is not that you can never take an oath, a genuine oath. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 10... God making covenants. The point is, your yes should be yes. Mean what you say. Be a person of your word. How does this expose our guiltiness? Well, it exposes our guiltiness because we don't always keep our word. And we're not always honest. And we don't always do what we say we're going to do. Surely everyone feels a sense of guilt here. Surely you feel a sense of guilt that you haven't always done what you said you were going to do. That you haven't been entirely, always haven't, you haven't always been entirely forthright with your intentions or your word. I know I'm guilty. How does this point us to grace in Christ? Well, again, he would have been the truth teller. He would have been the one who only and always and forever told the truth. And so I'm thankful that if I trust in Christ, I'm united to Him by faith and God accepts me as if I always told the truth. How does it guide the saved in gratitude? Well, now, I, I, now that I've trusted in the one who says He is the truth and He asks me to tell the truth and not be a deceiver, well, I, I, I want to do that. It's a light unto my path. I'm not condemned for my lying or lack of utter straightforwardness, but I, I, I want to say what's right. I want to do what's right. I want to be a man of my word. Again, I referenced James 5:12 earlier. Fifth. Fifth, but I say to you, declaration from Jesus that exposes guiltiness, points to grace in Christ and guides the saved in gratitude. We see it in verse 38 and 39. And following, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Exodus 21, Leviticus 24, Deuteronomy 19. A positive statement about justice. Equal, if you violate, there's an equal consequence. It's fair. You get what you deserve. Not worse, not less. It's a good statement. Then it says in verse 39 But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I'll be the first one to say this is challenging. Challenging because I like exact justice when it's not applied to me. When something wrong is done, there should be something fair and exact given to the person in return. I like to be the guy who says, if you don't earn it, you shouldn't get it. There's something true and right about that, by the way. God is a just God. And yet we're now learning from Jesus... Something of kindness and mercy, knowing that we've been shown kindness and mercy. And so we are, are seeing something a little bit different here. I would note as one qualifier that kind of helps me think this through, but it doesn't answer all my questions, is Jesus is addressing individual believers here. He's not addressing the governing officials. He's not writing a textbook on how to, how to run a city um, or, or how to run local or federal government or something like that. But he's talking to these believers who are shown mercy, shown kindness. And so he, he, he's addressing a certain group and I think we need to even keep that in mind. I, even as another aside to kind of help us because this is complicated, I think. Even when Jesus talks about church government, it actually doesn't look exactly like this. But here he's addressing them, these kingdom citizens, if you will, and the disciples. And I want you to be acting and thinking like you belong to this coming kingdom that will be perfect. And it seems to show up in this, this ethic that he's describing to them. But again, all kinds of questions. I mean, here's a question. Does this mean I should take the locks off of my house? Well that would be uh, interesting. Uh, go for it. Uh, no, I wouldn't recommend it. I also have obligation to take care of my family. Biblical obligation to to love them and to provide for them. So then how do I do that? I would just encourage you to pray for wisdom to figure out how you work this out in your life. Um, And I probably don't work it out perfectly. Guilt. Thankful for Christ because I don't even know all the questions to be answering that I can't answer rightly. Gratitude. You know what? I'm thankful. And I do want to have the spirit of this kind of person who doesn't always exact uh, uh, and, uh, a one-to-one correlation what you deserve is what I'm going to give you in return I can be merciful and gracious and, and so can you and hopefully we can grow in that in our gratitude let's move on now to the final one a sixth but I say to you declaration from Jesus that exposes guiltiness points to grace in Christ and guides the saved in gratitude 43 says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Not an exact text. No, we know we're supposed to love. But what about the hate side? Well, you do have an emphasis like in Psalm 139, for example. I hate those who hate you. There is this kind of um, hating enemy kind of emphasis that shows loyalty. Deuteronomy 7, Exodus 34. So the, the attitude is you, you love the people who are around you, you care about, and you hate your enemies. And Then Jesus says in verse 44, don't miss it. But I say to you, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. 45 says, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Ah, that's kind of the aha moment. It seems counterintuitive. I would love the ones I want to love who, will, who are close to me, but I'm going to hate or disregard the other people. Well, wait a second. He says, but if you belong to God by, by the fact that you've trusted in His Son, well, well, God doesn't act that way. 45 goes on to say, For He makes His Son, S-U-N, rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We call it common grace. It's it's indiscriminate generosity to all different kinds of people. And so we need to learn something about how God works, and that's going to affect the way we work. Indiscriminate generosity, all kinds of people. 46 says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? I mean, that that's just normal. That's common. Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Yeah. Even they have a code. Like I like, I, I like to say sometimes, even pirates have a code. They don't kill one another all of the time. Uh, they do right things, um, lowercase r, general uh, good. Then 47 says, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles, the godless, do the same? And the answer is, uh, of course they do. course they do. They understand the generalities, but here what we're seeing is we imitate God and how he loves because we belong to him. And then 48, 48 is the doozy and we'll we'll try to wrap it up on this. 48 is a, as an ending to this final, but I say to you statement, but I'm also going to see it as a, a final bracketing of this address. 48, don't miss it. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And I think perfect means perfect. It's all been legalities. It's all been about exactitude. It's all been about precision, blowing the dust off of their eyes. And there Jesus says with the final closing, be perfect as God is perfect. Now sure it applies to the love, but it probably applies broader, And this is the death knell. This is the death blow, if you will, because we have to, if we're honest, by God's grace, we have to say, fail, fail, fail. I don't meet the exactitude requirement. Jesus doesn't lessen the requirement. He makes it all the clearer for us to see. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is why we can say to people, and we should remind ourselves, heaven requires perfection. Nobody gets into heaven. Nobody is justified apart from perfection. Which is why we don't look to ourselves, to our own performance, to our own ability. I'm going to keep the requirements of the Sermon on the Mount, and I'm going to do these things, and then God's going to accept me. Well, maybe externally we can do a pretty good job sometimes, But He goes for the heart, motive, actuality, precisely. So that we will say, guilty. So that we will look to Him in His grace. And having discovered His grace in Christ, having been saved by Him, 121, then we want to do the right thing. God, help me now to bear the fruit of the Spirit, which would be things like love. Which would relate to other people, like Patience, like kindness, like generosity, like long-suffering, obeying God's requirements. Fruit of the Spirit, not because of our own efforts. Ultimately, because of the Spirit working in us. I hope now you at least understand why I would want to say, let's look at this through a certain paradigm. All kinds of people teach work salvation through preaching the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. Remember chapter 1, verse 21. If we could do it to be saved, he wouldn't be named Jesus, the one who came to save his people from their sins. But we have to see that we would never look to a Savior if we think somehow we're sufficient and we can do it on our own. We're guilty, so we look to his grace. And now on the other side of things, as kingdom citizens, we want to live our lives of obedience and gratitude unto him. So this week in my life, I want to treat other people differently. I want to think differently, even as I would want to approach God in worship. But not to get in, but because I'm in through Christ Jesus in his perfect work on my behalf. We should pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for reminding us that we can trust you and that you're good and kind and generous toward us, that you've shown us not only common grace, but you've shown us extraordinary, special, unique grace in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus. May we be looking to him during these days and may we be looking to him through all of our days. Sustain us, encourage us, Build us up, in Jesus' name, amen.